Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by comedian Larry Wilmore. For three decades, Larry has worked in comedy in various capacities, as a stand-up, a writer on The Office and In Living Color, the creator of The Bernie Mac Show and Grownish, the co-creator of Insecure, and the host of The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, which ran on Comedy Central back in 2015. Larry is now the host of Black on the Air through the Ringer Podcast Network. It's part interview show, part Larry unpacking the news of the week. He has a way of doing both really well. In fact, if you look at his career, he has a way of doing a lot of things very well, often at once. In today's episode, we start by walking through his upbringing in Pomona, California, and why he used comedy as a coping mechanism, as the middle child of six. He also shares how he chose gratitude and joy when neither were a given growing up. On the back half, he shares these creative lessons that come from three decades of working in television, a medium he's undeniably had an impact on, both creatively and politically. 
his career-long focus on diversity, of amplifying voices that were previously unheard, stories untold, has permanently changed the landscape of television. Now, before we jump in, since I started the show in 2016, my dad and I have had these long, rambling phone calls about which people he would like to hear on Talk Easy. Mainly Kevin Costner. He really wants us to have Kevin Costner on. But aside from Kevin Costner, at least five or six times in the last few years, my dad has said, when is Larry Wilmore coming on the show? I love Larry Wilmore. You have to make that happen. And so at long last, we've made it happen. And I'm glad we did. This one, like every episode, is for you, the listener, wherever you are. And, of course, for my dad. We'll figure out Kevin Costner next. For today, here is the one and only Larry Wilmore. Larry Wilmore. Hello. How are you feeling right now? Good. Can't complain. You could complain. Nah, nobody cares. At a, <laughs> at a certain point, there's a uh, hierarchy of being able to complain about things, you know. At this point in my life, nobody cares if I complain. Absolutely not. <laughs> Why is that? I've been around too long. <laughs> you got to get all your complaining out. See, you can complain, Sam. You're at a good age. You can complain. I can complain? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How old are you? If I say, will it ruin this whole conversation? No, not at all. It enhances it. It proves it. 26. Oh, yeah. You got years of complaining left. <laughs> years of complaining. I would argue that my arguing is not a complaint, by the way, but I would argue that you are in your prime complaining years right now. <laughs> I'm in peak complaining mode. Peak complaining mode. PCM. It's almost expected of you. You're almost a le- It's almost a letdown if you don't complain. When did your peak complaining years come to an end? I was never a complainer. Really? Nah, it's just not my style. I just, you know, for me, it's just energy wasted when I could be doing something. So yeah, complaining has never fit me well. I growl, you know what I do? I will grouse about something maybe to, to friends. So I was a grouser more than like, ugh, got to do this thing again. But my grousing never rose to the level of complaint. <laughs> it just stayed at the grouse, you know, just that, you know, the burner where you're trying to find between middle and simmer. It's not quite simmer. It's not quite middle. It's a, it's that nice glow there mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, it's a slow cook. This is my recipe for making over medium eggs, by the way. <laughs> this is my suggestion. <laughs> I was hoping, I was going to save that for the last 20 minutes of the podcast, but I'm glad you're just getting it out sure. in the open now. I mean, if you want to dedicate 20 <laughs> minutes to that, that's you, man. This is your pod. Do what you got to do. I'd like to begin really with the present, and then we'll go back a little bit. How have you managed these last 18 months? It's been challenging in many different ways. I, you know, publicly, people know that I lost my little brother a few months ago, and it was very, that was the most difficult part of everything because he had some tough health conditions for a long time, and I was very suspicious that this whole situation would not be good for him. Now, Mark was 57, right? Yeah. Yeah. And having dealt with that, it kind of puts everything else in a different box than it was before that, I guess, you know. 
But like I said, my approach to life is to try to make something out of something rather than look at the downside of it. In the beginning, as I was scared, just like everyone else was during, you know, those first couple of months of the pandemic. But very early on, I felt that um, I didn't like a lot of the noise coming out from many people, just either strict lockdown or the government's lying to you or all these things. You know, there's so much chatter. I thought the thing that we should really have been focused on early on was learning to live with this. How are we going to live with this? Because people have learned to live with things that have been really bad over millennia, you know. We're in one of the best eras in terms of being able to deal with things, and then we seem the least emotionally able to do it, you know. So I was kind of trying to focus on, okay, how how are we going to live with this practically? If this virus is around for a couple of years, which at that point we had no idea of knowing, we can't act like we're prisoners of it forever. We're going to have to learn to live in a certain way, you know. So I kind of focused uh, things like that kind of early on, I guess you could say. And, and I think that kind of affected me in a positive way. And you do have that mentality, which is continue onward at all costs. Right. Have you always had that? I think so. I think having to not to count on something outside, you know, the deus ex machina is the term in theater where the gods come at the end of the play to give us the result. In Jurassic Park, I called it a deus rex machina. But uh, I've always felt that we should be our own deus ex machina in life. You know, it was early on when I've told this story before where when my parents divorced, we kind of went from middle class to what I call underclass. Things were really tough for my mom, a single mom, raising six kids. It was just tough. And there was a point I remember where my brother and I were in the house and the house was falling apart and there was actually a hole <laughs> in the roof. Yeah, you could see, I could see the sky, Sam. I could see the fucking sky. And I just looked at my brother and said, man, I'm just not going to live like this. You know, I can't do this. And I think at that moment, it's kind of a clarifying moment where I just accepted the responsibility that if my life was going to have transformation, it was up to me. Your parents divorced at around age eight or nine for you? Something like that. They kind of separated maybe at that time. It may have been final when I was... I don't know, 10 or 12. Those years are kind of fuzzy in terms of when things were final. But I can remember as early as maybe when I was seven that they were having problems and, you know, were kind of separated probably by the time I was nine, I think. How did you know they were having problems? Oh, because there was a lot of fighting that went on. They, they, my parents fought all the time. By the way, my parents are together now, but they still fight all the time. It's the craziest thing in the world. It drives me crazy. In fact, one of the I'm developing a show right now that's based on all the arguing that goes on. They're the hardest people to figure out in the world. But back then, you're a young person, you have all these children, it, it has a little more weight. Right now, it's just an annoyance for them both. You know, <laughs> it's a little different. And, you know, in the background of all that arguing was me and my brother in our bedrooms at night trying to make each other laugh. And I think that's where my comedy bones were formed, you know, to kind of just shut that down or whatever. So that was that was kind of our tool of, I guess, dealing with all of that at an early age. And then it just became its own thing. In high school, you said, I had always been a good student in coming up, although my last two years in high school were very difficult for me emotionally. Yeah. There was just a lot going on, and I kind of think I abandoned my academic career, and I always regretted that because I was a good student, but I think it was too much for me emotionally to handle in my life at the time. 
Yeah, today they would have had me heavily medicated, I think. <laughs> At that age, I chose a lot of escapes to deal with it. I was I was really good in sports growing up, too. I was academically good. I got a scholarship to go to high schools, a private school, a Catholic school. And, uh, you know, I was the star in multiple sports, that type of thing. But our house life at the time was terrible. It was really bad. Both of my sisters had run away at different times. Uh, my mom was going through a nervous breakdown. The house was a mess. There was no ability to have any sense of normalcy. And so my home life was just really not good. And there were many times, uh, you know, I wouldn't get home till pretty late and you'd just be exhausted trying to do things. But I remember, I think it was between my sophomore and junior year. And even as a sophomore, I think I was taking calculus as a sophomore and, and I was in like speech class and drama and playing like two sports. I was always doing multiple things and high achieving at it. But the academic part of it, it just fell out. I just couldn't do it, Sam. It's just too much. There was an emotional block that kind of happened at that time. And I can look to that moment in time and I know exactly, you know, it was just overwhelming to deal with all of that, especially to see your mom just having a really tough time emotionally dealing with everything. Now I know that it's depression, you know, that she was going through at the time. It was more than just circumstantial. And she's had to deal with that all her life. And I had no way of knowing then. You just see that you're not able to take care of this person that is having a breakdown in front of you. Did you try to? There's nothing we could do, you know. Like I said, all I could do was try to escape into my escape things, you know. I got more involved in theater during that time. Theater and sports were my biggest escapes. But I also, I was an amateur magician. I did magic tricks, you know. I started a magic club at the school. Luckily, here's the thing, Sam. I was in a neighborhood that when I was really young was kind of a middle class neighborhood. And it kind of went downhill a bit. I would say some drugs came into it. This is during the 70s and that kind of stuff. And my sisters got involved in some of that and some bad stuff. But I'm kind of naturally contrary by nature. And I'm so happy that I am because since it was so popular and everyone was doing it, I kind of resisted it and didn't do it. And I'm really lucky because I had friends in the neighborhood and around who had as much going on as I did in terms of their potential in that. But drugs just destroyed them. It was a sad sight to see during that era. That era, I would say between like 1975 and 1990, not just my neighborhood, it took a lot of good people. Like drugs was a really heavy toll in a lot of communities, not just mine. And I saw it firsthand. And like I said, people who had so much potential, but their way of dealing with some of the stuff like I was dealing with, but their own version of it, I'm sure, was overwhelming for them. I chose positive outlets to kind of pour it into, luckily for me, but it could have gone the other way, you know. Your way of dealing with it was to make people laugh. Yes, that was one of them, yes. But the other was uh, performing, like sports was a big one, basketball, football, that type of thing. Making people laugh. It was actually a little more private then. It's always been an expression. I wasn't performing as much. I started doing it a bit in high school, but it just seemed like so natural. It did. I guess I put it like this. It didn't feel like an escape. Like the other things were definite escapes, you know. In doing research, I think it's important for people to know you grow up in Pomona. Yes. Your parents are from Chicago, but you, Larry, as I believe the middle child of six kids, or this complete anomaly. You yeah. You play basketball, football, track. Right. You mentioned theater, but the amount of kids that are obsessed with both Magic Johnson and Ibsen is very small. Absolutely. And that wasn't the only subset. It was, the, yes, the theater geeks and jocks, but it was also the speech crowd. On the debate team. 
Exactly. These are the people who would go on to Harvard and some of those schools. I was dealing with the elite of the students, especially in my first couple of years, politics in that realm. So I was part of that group in a sense, too. I was accepted in all of these different groups. And I was the only like thing that was the same in that, you know. And uh, it's it's funny where you first learn you know, in the black community, we have a term called code switching. Like I had numerous types of code switching, not just black and white, but, you know, nerd and jock, you know, or that elite type of student type of thing, you know. Did you know you were doing that when you were doing that? I wasn't conscious of it. It just kind of happened. I mean, I didn't do it as a mechanism. It was just, you know, when you're young, you just want to fit in. I was conscious of for a lot of years, I didn't quite, and this is going to sound weird, I didn't It took me a long time to kind of be comfortable with who I was. I was never quite comfortable with that because I didn't quite know, you know, who I was. And and I was a natural mimic. I did impressions like growing up and that type of stuff. And I would take on many times like characteristics of the people I was with. And that's one of the ways that I code switched, you know, that was just part of me. One of the worst ways, which still affects me to this day, was a, a good friend of mine when I was, I'll say maybe 10 or 11, something like that. But he had a stuttering problem and stupid zealot me start stuttering because I'm taking on his thing. And and uh, and I have problems with it for certain words, like for years and years. And it's funny, I learned kind of later that it's even more than code switching and that type of stuff for me is that I'm kind of an empath in certain ways. It's actually deeper than just mimicry. And I learned this, I'll tell you the story, I don't know if I've told it, when I was... Um, Well, there's two parts to it. There's one part where I never felt like um, I had permission to have my own emotions for a long time. I think I was was in my late 20s or 30s, and I think a lot of people can relate to this type of thing. That was the first time I felt permission to get really angry for a little bit, because I never felt that permission. And part of it was, I believe, you know, when your parents divorced and split up and I was the oldest son, you kind of feel responsible. So you have to grow up kind of fast. So you don't have time for your own anger and stuff. So some of that stuff was suppressed. But the other part of it is kind of interesting is that not only that, but I would suppose myself in someone else's experience, which can be very uh, not so good for your own emotional growth. You know, I learned and The way in which I was an empath, I don't think it's a physiological, metaphysical thing. I believe it was more psychological is how I look at it. But it became this physiological thing. And I'll explain about a month before my wife was going to give birth. I had this horrible pain in the small of my back. It was terrible. I could barely walk. I went to a couple of doctors. They couldn't figure out what it was. One person said, well, I might have pleurisy. I had no idea what that was. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, it was so painful. It was every day. It was alive. It was there. As soon as my wife gave birth, it was gone. And I realized that I was sharing her pain that she was having in the same place. And it was so, what the fuck is that all about? You know, and that's where I first realized that that's kind of what I do. When you're a kid and you feel like you have to take care of your mom and that kind of stuff, you you don't have permission for your own stuff because you got to take on theirs. And it took some working on that actually to kind of get through that. And it happened again. When my second child was born, same thing. The same pain came back, this time a couple of weeks. But now I knew what it was. And I'm like, no, motherfucker, you're not going to give me this time. <laughs> and it hurt again. It, it, when she was born, it went away. And it was fascinating. I have never... It, it, fascinating, Sam, that something like that would happen. Do you think that's why, when you're a teenager, you gravitate to theater where you could feel feelings through a conduit of a character that's not yourself. 
Yeah, it's a great question. And there are two ways that you can act. One is harder than the other. The first way where a lot of your brilliant actors operate from is they learn to control their own emotional life, you know, and they express it in this way. It's based on their emotions are coming out and that type of thing. But the other way is you're imposing yourself in someone else's experience and you're kind of jumping into that and expressing it out. You're imagining an experience rather than living through an experience. And so I was the latter. It's a harder way to go, but it was it was easier for me because I couldn't generate my own anger at something. I had to imagine a different type of thing or or that sort of thing. So, but you're absolutely right. It was definitely a way to have certain types of feelings and that kind of stuff. When you're a young person at college, you go to California State Polytech University and you come home for the summer and you take up a job selling books door to door. This is a encyclopedia called the Volume Library. Now, this is an unusual job for a young person to take. But I wonder if this moment, this experience, started to give you permission to be yourself a little bit. For me, I look back at it as the moment I started my professional life. I went into a lot of homes. Well, let me, let me, put, let me give you more context for it. So I was in college at that time, and just not knowing for sure what I really wanted to do. A lot of things up in the air. As I said, academics for me were a mess. You know, I, I had gone to a junior college for two years and then transferred to Cal Poly, but still not knowing exactly what I was going to do. You know, it was hard for me to study still. I was a theater rat. You know, I was in the theater all the time. Cal Poly was great. So many great students there and instructors and everything. I really took it seriously too. studied. started doing stand-up comedy about the time a little bit kind of put my toe in it, but that wasn't going to happen until a little later. But this summer, I did this because I felt I was feeling a little lost or whatever. And I went into so many people's homes and of people who I could tell they just kind of had accepted their fate, I guess you could say, and were just kind of going along or that type of thing. Or, you know, I could see sadness on them. I met a lot of great people that summer. It was really amazing. It just gave me the confidence to say I was going to choose the thing that I was going to find fulfillment in as a thing to do in my life, and everything else would follow that. So it gave me clarity for that. And after that summer, I've had that clarity ever since. Very, very lucky about that. It was a really clarifying summer for me. How did you know that these strangers were unhappy? Well, once again, I'm an empath. <laughs> Maybe it's part of why I'm a writer. I mean, in the first couple of sentences of talking to someone, I can usually hear subtext. I hear subtext before I hear words oftentimes. And in fact, I do this with my family sometimes and friends. They'll say something, I go, what do you mean? Or I'll say, ask your real question. Ask your real question. <laughs> and they go, ah! <laughs> you know, because I know they're not asking the real question. You know, What are you doing Saturday? Well, what's your real question? Uh... <laughs> and in the first moments of talking to someone, you can tell kind of where they are. You can see people's lives very quickly. Some people were amazing. They really opened up to you and everything, you know. But there was a pattern of something that I noticed. And I felt like at that young time in my life, and I had nothing to lose, that I want to choose the happiness side of it, the fulfillment side of my life, rather than what I think is the right thing to do for whatever reason. That's a lesson sometimes people never learn, or they learn it too late. Absolutely. Their whole lives. Very lucky. I tell people I haven't worked since that summer because it's not work for me to do that. 
You didn't work, but you did hustle. Yeah, I'm making a distinction for a different reason. You know, I certainly did work and work hard and everything, but I didn't consider it what we consider work. I came up in a generation where people started having different ideas about what you do for a living. In the previous generation, job was different from hobbies. The purpose of the job was to get money to pay bills, to feed your family, to provide security and that. That was the purpose of job. To make you happy was not purpose of job. Not job's job to make you happy. Life's job was to do that for you. That's why you had a family. That's why you did these other things. That's why you're in the bowling league. You know, <laughs> Those are the things that were supposed to make you happy. It was a new concept that, wait, job's job might be to make you happy too? Well, who... How come no one told us this? You know, so I kind of grew up in that. Now it's kind of taken for granted. And now I feel like people should go back a little bit to the other way. In fact, I've counseled college students on this. I said, your job doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that brings you fulfillment. Sometimes your job can be the thing that you're good at and that can provide a living for you and choose other things to give you fulfillment. Because all the things that you have for fulfillment may not be able to give you an income. Not necessarily so. Sometimes it lines up that way but not necessarily. So you've come back around on this. Because I'm contrary. Because now if everybody thinks that, I go, well, maybe there must be something wrong with it. Let's look at <laughs> Let's look at this another way. But even more so the contrary, I'm always trying to pierce through what is the truth of a situation. And it's not always the same for a given problem. If I've been born 10 years before, or maybe 20 years before, I probably would have been, I might have been in the scientific field because I love science and I love discovery and that type of thing. I would have loved to have been like a research scientist, especially during that era when there were so many discoveries. But even when it comes to comedy, you've indicated that perhaps you were born 10 years too late. You said in 2015 on NPR, when I was coming up, there were many different styles of what you would call black comedy. There was Bill Cosby, who was a storyteller. There was Dick Gregory, who was a political comic. There was Godfrey Cambridge, who was kind of a hipster. You had Flip Wilson, who was more of a vaudevillian type of joke teller. And then you had Red Fox, who was what you would call your party records type of comic. So, growing up, you had all these different examples of comedians but you entered an entirely different landscape by the time you started performing in the late 80s, early 90s. It was a different era in terms of the, of the industry knowing what to do with comedians, but not the audience, okay? But I was in the correct era for entrepreneurship, or whatever that word is, for us to determine our own fate based on the fact that we're different. Because luckily, at that same time, remember Spike Lee was out directing movies, Keenan was doing Living Color. Arsenio was doing his show. Eddie was the biggest thing on the planet. So I was at the exact right time to do what I do best and make my own path. Because 10 years earlier, the industry wouldn't have allowed me to do that. So I actually was at the right time to be rejected in that way, <laughs> ironically, and to be able to say, all right, motherfuckers, I'll do it myself then. You know, What was the experience like of watching She's Gotta Have It in the mid-80s or Hollywood Shuffle by Robert Townsend? Hollywood Shuffle was a game changer as far as I was concerned, because Robert Townsend, Robert, I think, used credit cards or something like that, you know, his friends who were very talented friends. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes 
workflows and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Wrote the type of comedy that was very funny. Nobody else would do that type of thing. That was such an inspiration for me personally in terms of doing it yourself and uh, not having to rely on the gatekeepers to say what something had to be. Huge inspiration, not just for me, but for a lot of people. I would say Spike in many different ways was an inspiration. One of the ways was the commercials he was doing with Michael Jordan. Because here was a guy who's this interesting little figure, a little figure, I don't mean it like that, Spike, you know, who's director, but he also became this personality and kind of this 
iconic type of energy that was out there that I thought was different. Spike, I think, inspired a lot of people in ways that were more than just filmmaking, of being this entity, this brand. He, Brand is probably a better word. He kind of splashed out a brand kind of early on. And I think in that way, he was very influential. He was inspiring outside of the frame. Yes, I think so. He was more of a cultural inspiration, I'll say, for me personally. As opposed to, I didn't look at Spike in the way that I looked at Mike Nichols and said, man, I want to be a craft filmmaker like that. When I looked at Mike Nichols, I was like, oh, wow. I love the way that he tells stories, you know, that nothing against the way Spike tells stories. But my inspiration of Spike was, wow, look at the cultural impact Spike is able to have by doing the things that he's doing. So many people are familiar with your comedy now, present day Larry Wilmore comedy. You have a bit that you started out with that I think is one of your favorites. And I was wondering if you would be open to sharing it. It's called Black Away. Uh, (laughs) Okay, my stand-up act was a hodgepodge of many different crazy things. (laughs) Some were like, I would just stop and do a commercial parody in the middle of my stand-up. It was crazy. I don't mean to put your earlier work on trial here. No, it's fine. I'm very fond of it, you know, because I had so much fun doing it. Ironically, it wasn't the type of thing that the industry was looking for a black comic to be doing, you know, to switch it up like that. But as a writer, I was able to insinuate myself indoors because I was writing some clever, funny stuff. Black Away was this commercial parody I did about not being able to get things because you quote unquote talk black and you put a couple of drops in your mouth and it takes the black away. It takes the black right out of your voice. (laughs) And uh, it was a little commercial parody. What did the industry not want black artists to do? Well... I think it's what they wanted them to do from my perspective that to me I found confining was I think the industry at that time liked if you were definitely from the ghetto or what they called urban, you shouldn't be smart, but it's okay if you're wise. And by wise, it means you're offering advice to a white man. If you're smart, you have advice for everyone and yourself. But wise is advice for the white man. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. The Bagger Vance type of advice, right? Or whatever. Not to knock that movie. Yeah, but why can't I just think for myself? You know, why can't I have a view on politics, you know, in the world and that sort of thing? Why do I have to be put into this box where you can feel superior to me because you feel like you're helping me or you're helping to save my life? Nigga, I don't need help from you. I can save my own life. <laughs> you know... What are you going to do? I have a feeling, what are you going to do is one of your guiding philosophies. Chapman University asked if I would do the commencement speech a couple of years ago. I guess the person they wanted apparently dropped that. And first, anytime you have to write a speech, you always say, why did I agree to do this? Because now I got to write the damn thing, you know. And I think people may have had an expectation for me based on the stuff that I do. But, you know, me being the contrarian, I just went with some simple advice and made a speech out of it. And it was these three things I came up with years ago that I used to joke about with my friends, you know, but I thought, let me make a speech out of this because I think it is good, solid advice. And it was the three principles that will save them in any situation. It is what it is, is the first one. Second one is do what you got to do. And the third one is play better. (laughs) And I made this whole speech about it and it was so much fun. I got a standing ovation at the end of it from both students and parents. I just really, really enjoyed it. And yeah, it's my kind of practical approach to the world out there that's a little separate from my commentary about situations, which exists in a different type of editorial space. I think about that practical approach 
in the inevitable outcome of you making the Bernie Mac show. Because Mm -hmm. this is a show about a successful comedian who takes in his sister's kids from Chicago to live with him in Los Angeles. It's Bernie Mac at the time. And you said, I wanted to do a show about kind of what I call the heartache of parenting, as opposed Mm -hmm. to the difficulties of parenting. When you look back on this program, this is 2001, you had been writing on other shows before that. What do you remember most? Working with Ken Quapis and Bernie, the three of us together was just magical at that time. You know, there was so much that we were doing that was different. And I was really guided by wanting to put something on TV that wasn't there. It's kind of how I'm guided by all the things that I do. I'm not the person that you come to and you say, we want to do the black version of this, you know, or or this is popular in the air. So we want to do this version. I said, why are you coming to me? It's It already exists. I'm I'm happier when I say, this is not on TV right now. I go, oh, well, let's do that. And that's what I felt with the Bernie Mac show. There's so much of that that just wasn't on TV at the time. The biggest thing was it was a single camera show, and it was mostly multicam at that time. Biggest shows at that time were still Frasier and Will and & Grace and huge audiences, those types. just very popular. I think the only other single camera show, I think, was Malcolm in the Middle at the time. That was it. So the leap of faith that it took to do that, I was very proud of for myself for uh, doing that. This was a show where you're kind of deconstructing the sitcom. And I guess, could you sort of explain the, the context of the sitcom and then where the show fits in? So the sitcom at about that time, the multi-camera form, not all of it is like this, but much of it is based on what I call farce. A farce setup, usually somebody gets something wrong, and then the episode is spent trying to undo this wrong, and the jokes come from people not understanding that the wrong thing has been done, you know, and they finally figured out what is right. And there's slamming doors and all that kind of stuff, and it's based on a theatrical convention called Farce. Moliere was one of the early people to do this. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of your multicams are kind of built around this convention. And many people don't even realize that's what they're doing. Not all comedies are like that, but they kind of became a lot like that in the 90s. Early on, there were many different forms of it. All in Family is more of what you might call a drawing room comedy. It's uh, based on this issue that is in the air that people are kind of living their lives and having this argument about. It's not based on a, a misinterpretation of something, you know, or or that type of thing, you know. But anyhow, I felt like it was getting too stale in that. Our expectations were, they were just too easily met. I wanted to do something that was a little surprising, a little unexpected. I'd just done the PJs. It was the most creative thing I'd ever done in my life. And I wanted to to try to go forward with it. And so when uh, I got a chance to do the Bernie Mac show, before I thought of doing a show for Bernie, I watched this documentary on PBS called 1900 House. And 1900 House was the show where they had put cameras into this house and people had to live as if it was 1900. And it was fascinating to me because I'm a big lover of human behavior and how it plays out. And to see people's behavior just change based on these constrictions of living the way people lived, you know, 100 years earlier, it was fascinating. And they had this confessional camera that they would... (laughs) They would have to confess their sins to say, I had a Snickers bar today. I shouldn't have had it, but I was so hungry and I just had to have something that was like normal, you know. What accent is that? I have no idea. I have no idea. I just made something up. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I've never heard that accent before. I know. It's crazy, but I have crazy accents. I could do all the Beatles, by the way. 
Hello, this is John Lennon speaking with his voice. Yeah, you know, that was Paul. He was Paul was kind of up there. And George, George kind of had his he kind of spoke through his mouth. And then there was Ringo. Hello, lads. You know, it's a bit down there. <laughs> I don't know. It's crazy. By the way, naturally you did Ringo's last. But no shade, Ringo. We love you. So anyhow, I just found that fascinating. I said, well, that's an interesting way to tell a story. Can you tell a story kind of doing this? And I thought, well, you're kind of observing people rather than having this form of this action being presented to us. That's what I mean by farce, the slamming doors, these conventions, these things that we're used to giving us the action. Can we view action in a different way, you know, and build the uh, the story in a different form, you know? And so I was intrigued by that. And so I thought about just putting cameras in a house and doing a sitcom kind of that way. And I was talking to a couple of friends of mine about it. And I was thinking about that. And then I saw Bernie stand up acting Kings of Comedy. I was like, oh, that is so funny. I said, man, what if I put Bernie Mac in this house, like with kids? And it felt like we were just observing him, observing Bernie Mac taking care of kids. And I just started laughing. I go, oh. That's great. And uh, just from that simple idea, I pitched it to Bernie and he loved it and thought it was great, you know, and pitched it to Fox and they bought it. But then the hard part was writing it because I hadn't written this before. And I go, good job, Larry. What are you going to do now? (laughs) And I tell this story. uh, I tell that length. I'll give you the short version of it. But I had had a deal at Disney, like this overall deal that had expired, but I stayed in my office and I was kind of camping out in there. Nobody even knew. I would just wait to the guards go (laughs) a lot, you know, just just sneak in my office, that type of thing. So I was like in an office. I wasn't even supposed to be in anymore. And I was supposed to write this pilot that I just pitched and I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't have the tools for it. All my tools that I learned were based were this other form, you know, but I knew instinctively what I wanted to do. And so I, I would get to three pages and I would just stop. I would be stuck. I had an idea in my head, but I would just be stuck. And I was stuck on those three pages, I kid you not, for like four weeks, maybe four and a half weeks. And I wanted to kill myself. I was banging my head against the wall. Some days I wouldn't even write that first three pages. Boom. Couldn't get past it. I just couldn't figure it out. And they were asking, when are we going to get an outline? When are we going to get something? I go, ah, I thought, let me just give you a first draft. That'll be my outline. Like I was, I was just lying about just dying on the inside and it, just cursing myself for having pitched this stupid thing that I said it was going to have all these elements to it. And then one day I got to page four. This is after a month. I got to page four and it clicked. I got it. I was watching the tapes of the real world. And at the act break of most sitcoms, something is in question that we don't know is going to happen and you go to commercial. It's one of the manipulative tools, you know. Are they going to get married? What's Jack going to find out? What are we going to do? Act break. Danger. Act break. It's one of the manipulations to get you back, to get you to come back after the commercial. Okay, so when I was watching real world, there was none of that manipulation. It would just... Someone be talk to the girlfriend, go commercial, come back, and something else would be going on. I go, what? Nothing's manipulating me to come back, yet I want to come back. What is going on here? <laughs> you know. And I was trying to figure it out from a story point of view, you know. And I realized I went, oh man, maybe I'm just interested in this character's emotional journey, and it's not about this plot. And I started to make a distinction between plot and just emotional character journey. And I was like, ah, and it kind of clicked in my head. So one day I got to page four and this whole thing just clicked and formed together. And the entire script just poured out of me like in the next 36 hours, just poured out of me, couldn't stop writing. And that script, by the way, eventually won an Emmy. But I just I just got how it had to be written, that there was a real thing that I was avoiding that I had to attach myself to and drop the artifice of this type of manipulation that's been done. 
And the act breaks just ended, and then we just picked up. If you look at the pilot of the Bernie Mac show, there's no question mark at the end of the act breaks. It just ends. And now we're onto a different thing. I even titled them, kind of uh, stealing that from Frazier at the time, because each act break represented just a different movement in this character's art. And so it was a revelation to me. It changed completely how I wrote, just to follow that journey and not worry about the plot. I just threw it out. And in fact, when I make the pilot, Ken Quapis and I, director, we spent time watching 400 Blows, like a lot of French New Wave stuff, getting ready to shoot the pilot of the Bernie Mac show. I'm watching French New Wave films in preparation for the Bernie Mac show. So that's kind of some of my fondest memories of making that was the process of it. And then cut to a couple of years later, Fox has no idea what I'm doing. They think I'm a hack. I called a lot of this racist later on. They thought I was an idiot. They end up firing me because they, this is, what is this voodoo? Of course you have to have a plot, you know, like there's this one episode that we wrote. It was called Hot, Hot, Hot. And they said, well, what happens? I, my answer was, it's hot. <laughs> and they go, well, well, what is, what is the plot? It's hot. That's what the plot is. It's just hot. One of our most popular episodes, by the way, it was fantastic. It was just following Bernie having to take care of these kids when it was hot. It was a fantastic episode. You win an Emmy for writing. You win a Peabody for the show. TV Critics Award. Fox fires you after the second season. They felt I was incompetent and I did not know what I was doing. And they even told that to my face. You said of the upper management at Fox, they're real control freaks. We actually got a note once that said, and this is not an exaggeration or in reinterpretation, no more poignancy. My favorite quote from back then, though, was I said, uh, because they wanted to know what happened how could this possibly happen i said well we had creative differences i was creative and they were different so oh so many people reached out to me at the time and people i considered titans in the business everybody from carl reiner james l brooks i saw steven bochco i ran into and he said larry and i was like ah (laughs) you know steven bochco he said man you made a great show don't worry about that you know that's bullshit and all that and the outpouring of love and support I got from people I didn't even know who I considered just great people in the business was really cool. And then I, I remember I got the DVD for the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I saw how James Hill Brooks almost got fired from that for making a pilot that was just different. And the suits just didn't know how to deal with it. And they did one taping where it was like real cold and they had a lot of weird tourists. And it, it, this is for the pilot. And it just died the death of deaths. <laughs> he was about to be fired. And I think Mary saved him. You know, she's like, no, 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 this is my guy. You know, and Grant Tinker, who she was married to, they stood behind him and just were barely able to save him at the time. Second taping got huge laughs when they brought in a different audience and everything. And he survived it and lived to tell the story. But it's an interesting story. And it was so eerily similar to what I had gone through, except he had gone through that during the pilot stage. And I had gone through some of that, too, during that stage. But luckily, I lasted at least two years. (laughs) Winning an Emmy, a Peabody, TV Critics' Choice Award, winning all these awards, I think the audience says, well, that person's obviously hired back. And I wondered, because you would go on to make many more shows from this point. What did that experience teach you? I don't know if there was any lessons learned. It was really a down, dark moment. It was not a good time in my life. At that point, I was having problems in my marriage. That show was going bad. You know, I felt kind of alone in a lot of different ways. And I was very fortunate that I got an opportunity from NBC at that time. I ran a Whoopi Goldberg show for a while and then jumped over in the office. And I instinctively knew that I wanted to do something for myself because the reason why I originally got into writing and producing was I wanted to write a vehicle for myself 
myself, going back to our original conversation, that Hollywood didn't get me. So I thought, well, let me write my own thing and I'll write for myself. So that became my plan at that point. I said, okay, I've gone through the fires enough. Now it's time to focus on me. I've written for other people. Now I'll write for myself. So at that point, I started to focus on generating something for myself. And it was shortly thereafter where I started on The Daily Show and started on that path. On The Daily Show, you were the senior black correspondent. You were so good at that job that when Stephen Colbert left and ended his Colbert Report, you take over doing The Nightly Show. Your show premiered January 19th, 2015. We were talking about that dark period for you during the Bernie Mac fallout. This year seemed to have both things at the same time. And you said, this show is the biggest thing that has ever happened to me in my career and the lowest things in terms of my personal life, which I believe is when you got a divorce. Mm -hmm. How did you sit with those two things? Well, it's not easy. You know, you're not able to completely enjoy the highs of it, which is probably a good thing because you don't want to ride that too high anyway. But I was fortunate to have outlets that gave me some expression, you know, and income, (laughs) you know, and just working on it. Even though we were having problems, my wife and I, we worked on it and took it seriously. And you know, we got through some of those dark periods together. And that was important also. And I've always tried to focus on what is important, you know, and try to guide that part of my life as well as could be. At that time, the most important thing were our children who were in high school and making sure that they were good and everything. And that's where my mind was mostly focused on in my personal life, that sort of thing. The show is a blur because trying to do a show every night, is just a blur. Anyone who gets that job, they're so happy when they get it. But once they start, they go, how come nobody told me how hard it was? This is the hardest thing in the world. you know. And uh, had a lot of great people helping to make that work and everything. But yeah, definitely a lot of mixed feelings. Now, the Bernie Mac show, the end of that was different because there were two negatives going down. This was like this high thing and this low thing, you know, so it was a little different feeling there. And, you know, I was a little older and everything, and I think I could handle a little better. It was not easy, but I was, I think, at a stage where I was able to handle it well. When you look back on that program, what are you most proud of and what do you wish you did differently? The thing about the nightly show, which made it, let's say, difficult primarily, well, there were two aspects of it. One was it's a tough show to just do because there were two parts of it that I had to prepare for. One was this opening kind of monologue, which is you're writing an essay on something. That's basically what you're doing. You're writing an essay every night, which is very difficult, not easy to do, because you have to figure out what is my point of view about this thing? What do I want the audience to get? And now there have to be jokes telling us and everything too. And the second part of it was I was preparing for a full-blown discussion show. With We started with four guests. This is how crazy we were. I can't believe we did this. Four guests that I had to prepare for to do this discussion show about the topic. So I had to prepare for both of those things every day, which was just completely exhausting. I'll tell you, the one. here's one regret. I would never have done that second part of the show like that. With the way that we eventually got to it was much easier and much easier to produce, given the limitations of our format. If we had an hour show and we were on cable, I probably could have gotten away with that, but not a half hour show for the amount of time that we had. That was very difficult. 
But outside of that technical difficulty, the bigger difficulty was the nightly show was designed around an idea, but not designed around my personality. And that's a big distinction. And the idea was what we did the show where it's like this discussion about issues that mostly people aren't talking about on TV, especially these black and brown issues and this type of stuff. And you were the leader of it. That's how John Stewart basically pitched him. And I was like, great, I'm on board. Let's do it. So it was based on that idea, which was a great idea, but it wasn't based on, oh, Larry, your take on the world is blah, 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 blah. And we need to do a show based on your take on the world. That's different. The show then is a result of your take. So I had to reverse engineer. We had this idea for a show and I had to put my take within that. It's a little different. John Stewart had to do that with The Daily Show. I think he said it took him like a year and a half to turn that show around and make it his take. It took about 18 months to do that. With a lot of resistance, by the way, too, you know, because it was more of a satire or a parody, you could say, when it started. And John turned it into a true satire, you know. Parody, satire, completely different. Not the same. You're just making jokes in a parody, but you're saying something in satire. And for John to make that his voice took time. For me to make the nightly show my voice took time because those things are hard to manage. And it takes about 18 months, really. And in about 18 months... We were like rolling, I felt I found it. And that's exactly when the show went off the air too, which is kind of ironic, you know. But anybody could tell you, Seth could tell you, about 18 months. Steven, about 18 months. Even Trevor, about 18 for his show. I think Corden came out of the box maybe a little earlier, but I think it takes about that time to get your footing. When the show began, Jon Stewart said to you, I want to put people on television that aren't usually on television. I wonder how much of that principle has been a guiding force in the work you're doing now and, and the work you want to do in the years ahead. It's not to cut you off, but it's always been a guiding force for me, even before John said that. When he said it, I agreed with him because I had already been doing it. And I'm very happy and thankful that we shared that vision on it. John arguably is the smartest comedic guy I've ever worked with. He's so much integrity in things, you know, and it's so smart. And you, all you really want to do is please him <laughs> and, and hope you don't let him down, you know. But uh, we shared that vision, which was good. So it wasn't bestowed, it was shared. Uh, something, like I said, I'd always done from everything I'd done, the sketches I pitched on Living Color to the stuff we did on the PJs to even Insecure, doing that with Issa. The goal was to, HBO didn't have that. It didn't exist in premium cable, this type of show with black people. It was not in premium cable. Nope, 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 just didn't exist. And so we said, this should be in premium cable in that HBO type of space. And so even today, it just guides the things that I want to do. The people that don't always get a voice, let's give them a voice and put it somewhere where people can see it. Do you think you found your voice after all these years? I think it was always there, but I just didn't recognize that that's what it was. You could go back to Blackaway in that bit that I was doing in the mid 80s. And that's the same voice that I have now comedically, where I'm pointing out this thing. White people, you're judging us by the sound of our voice. Stop it. Give me your hand. Ah, you know, <laughs> that's basically what that is, pointing out that type of injustice. So my voice is there all along. I think I've matured as a person where I've accepted that I have permission to have a voice might be the a better way to put it. At the start of this conversation, we talked about your brother, Mark, who was a TV writer for The Simpsons and, and did a mm -hmm. whole bunch of stuff in comedy. And you said this thing that I didn't ask you about when you said it. So I want to bring it back as we leave, which is when he passed away at the end of January of this year, you said it put things in a different box for you. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what you meant by that. 
Well, I talked about this in my podcast the other week, and what's interesting is uh, this gentleman, and I don't have his name right now at the tip of my tongue, but it was such an honor. He, he quoted me on the floor of the legislature in Manitoba, and I was just floored by it. But I basically said it's made me focus, and you know, I've had periods of my life where I've had this, but even more so now on gratitude. You know, rather than mourn the loss of my brother and feel sad about that, I tried to focus on how thankful I was for having him in my life and focusing on the gratitude side of that and just looking for the areas in my life where I can have gratitude rather than, as we start out, complaints, opinions, whatever. But if I can pour out, <laughs> you know, gratitude, because it's an action, it's not just something you feel, you have to do it, you know. Then, once again, I will lead to a fulfilling life rather than a life observing something passing you by, which is happiness. Larry Wilmore, I'm very grateful for you. Speaking of gratitude, and I thank you for the time. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Sesedia Carosa. I'd also like to thank Larry Wilmore. His podcast, Black on the Air, is available wherever you do your podcasting. For more info on what we do here, visit talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear more conversations with other funny people, I recommend our talks with Fran Leibowitz, Norman Lear, Rob Reiner, Alan Alda, T.S. Madison, and Hassan Minhaj. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editors for today's episode are Eve Gershon and Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editor is Joshua Siegel. Our interns are Callie Syringus, Kaylin Ung, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash 
unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.